Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 50. He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. As I said, we're coming to the final passage of Luke's gospel and the final sermon in our study on the book of Luke. And Luke does indeed end his gospel quite literally at the end of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, Luke is the only gospel writer who ends his gospel here with a clear account of the ascension of Jesus. Now, beloved, I think I've said before in other sermons and other Sunday school Bible study teachings that the ascension of Christ is one of those events in the earthly life and ministry of Jesus that we probably do not emphasize enough. Now, other traditions in the broader Christian faith place a great emphasis on the ascension of Christ. Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and Lutherans and Anglicans all mark out in their church calendars the ascension of Jesus. They have an ascension day. Even the Anabaptists take great care to celebrate Christ's ascension. In Lancaster County, where I grew up, you could always tell um, from the Amish communities when they were celebrating ascension day. There was always that one Thursday every spring uh, where all the Amish-owned businesses were shut down. The roads would be filled with horses, with horse and buggies as Amish families would gather together to celebrate the ascension of Jesus Christ. Now understand, I am not advocating adding another holy day that is a holiday to our church calendar. The Bible, in reality, gives us one holy day, one holiday, and that is the Lord's Day. The Sabbath day when Christians gather because of the resurrection of Jesus to worship, to commune with God, and to commune with one another. Our lives as Christians is to resolve around this day, the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, which marks the greatest act of God's redemption in all of human history. And it's the Lord's Day day that takes precedence over all other man-made holidays. I hope you remember that this year, by the way, when Christmas is on a Sunday morning. It is still the Lord's Day. You are still commanded to gather and worship with God's people. But with all that said, there is a benefit, I think, to man-made holy days such as Ascension Day. And that benefit is this. Ascension Day, at the very least, keeps it in the minds of God's people that Christ's ascension into heaven is an important event in redemptive history and an important event in the ministry of Jesus Christ. There's a reason, beloved, that Christians from the earliest centuries of the church found it essential to confess in their gathered worship services that we believe Jesus ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You and I confess that belief every Lord's Day in our worship when we say the Apostles' Creed. But if I asked you this morning, what is the importance of Christ's ascension? I wonder how many of you could really give a good, robust, doctrinal, biblical, theological answer to that question. Do we really understand the importance of the ascension of Jesus Christ? 
Well, my aim today, beloved, is to remind you all and teach and instruct you all on the importance of the ascension. I want to, from Luke's closing verses this morning, show you the utter necessity of Christ's ascension into heaven. And Lord willing, in doing so, I hope and pray that you will grow in your faith and in your knowledge and in your love of our Lord. I hope you will leave this place marveling at who Jesus is and what He has done for you in His ascension and what He continues to do for you even now because of His ascension into heaven. So as we look at this text today, these will be my two areas of focus. First, what Jesus Christ did in His ascending back into heaven. And secondly, what Jesus Christ continues to do for us today because of His ascension into heaven. First, what did Jesus Christ do in His ascension into heaven? As we consider this point, let's look first at some of the information Luke gives us in this text. And we see that this event took place in Bethany. Now where is Bethany? Bethany is on the Mount of Olives. During Christ's Passion Week, we know that the Mount of Olives was the place of retreat and respite for, the, for Jesus and the twelve apostles. Every day they would come into Jerusalem, Jesus would teach in the temple, and they would go back to their camp on the Mount of Olives at the end of the day. It's where Jesus and the twelve camped between Palm Sunday and the uh, celebration of the Passover feast at the Last Supper. This is where Jesus on the Mount of Olives not only found rest, fellowship with His apostles during the Holy Week, it's also where He entered into great agony on the night in which He was betrayed as He entered into the Garden of Gethsemane also on the Mount of Olives and faced the reality of the looming cross, the cup of wrath that he, as the willing atoning sacrifice of God's elect, would be made to drink the next day in his crucifixion. It was on the Mount of Olives where Jesus was approached by one of his own, betrayed by a kiss, handed over to death. I think, beloved, it's no mistake that the Mount of Olives, where apart from the crucifixion itself, Jesus experienced his lowest point of humiliation in his earthly ministry, it's no mistake that it is now indeed the place where he experiences his exaltation. Christ had been through the darkest pits. He suffered under the hands of cruel men. He was blasphemed against, spit upon, beaten, mocked, whipped to the point of death, nailed to a cross. He died. He was thrown through the lowest pits of darkest hell as on the cross he suffered the full just holy wrath of God as he took onto himself the punishment that you and I deserve for every single sin that we've ever committed and will ever commit he even came under the power of death itself think about that the Lord and giver of life came under the power of death as he died and was buried in a borrowed tomb. But now Christ has experienced a great glorification as he was raised to life and victory. As he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death and the devil, he rose in both his human soul and in his human body and was indeed glorified in his rising from the dead. And now here he stands on the Mount of Olives, 
the glorified Christ and His glorified resurrected body. And look at what happens in verse 51. Luke says, while Jesus was blessing His disciples, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. This is His exaltation. Luke gives us a little more detail. Acts verse 1 I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Luke says a cloud took Jesus out of their sight. Now understand what that means, beloved. The cloud that took Jesus out of their sight is not some cloud high up in the sky. It wasn't as if because he was ascending up in the sky, a cloud passed through and just hid Jesus from their sight. That's not what is happening here. And I hope you understand that while the language of up is used in this passage... Heaven is not literally up. You can't travel up into the atmosphere and if you go like 25 million miles, you're eventually going to reach heaven. Likewise, hell is not literally down. You cannot dig down and down and down until you get to hell. The word up here does not refer to a geographical direction. It is referring to another sphere, another realm, a spiritual realm, an exalted realm realm, the realm of God's holy dwelling place, the realm of Christ's eternal throne. And so Jesus is taken up into this heavenly realm. And the cloud that Luke is talking about, it is the glory cloud of the Lord. It is what is known as the Shekinah glory. It's a cloud which is a visible display of the glory of God. It is a cloud which is a visible display of His presence with his people and his good pleasure. It's the same cloud that was with the Israelites in the desert when they left Egypt. The cloud which gave them shelter from the desert sun by day and the cloud of fire which guided them by night. It's the same cloud which came and rested upon Mount Sinai as the law was given to Moses. The same cloud which descended from heaven and rested upon the mercy seat of God in the tabernacle. The same cloud that the prophet Isaiah saw filling the temple. It's the same cloud that the prophet Ezekiel saw departing from the temple as God brought judgment upon unfaithful Israel. It's the same cloud that surrounded Jesus, Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration when the full glory of Jesus Christ was revealed to them. This is the cloud which took Jesus into heaven. And as Jesus was raining down blessings upon his disciples, the glory of God took Jesus up into the heavenly throne room, the same heavenly throne room which Jesus willingly left in his incarnation. Jesus Christ being ushered by the glory cloud of the Father's presence and joy, he was being led in a heavenly procession back to his throne. His ascension, beloved, was his coronation as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so then what what did Jesus do for us in his coronation, in his exaltation? First, he displayed to the disciples and to us today that his earthly mission of seeking and saving the lost, of making atonement for our sin, is a completed mission. It's a finished work. Jesus could ascend back to heaven because his mission was accomplished. Reconciliation between his bride, the church, and the holy God has been achieved. 
Our sins, the sins of all who come to Jesus by faith, have been atoned for. Forgiveness is now achieved and is now possible for all who repent. He has set us free from the bondage and slavery of sin. Death has been conquered. The ancient serpent's head was indeed crushed. And so his ascension is for us surety that Christ's work on this earth is finished. That's the first thing Jesus did in his ascension. Gave us certainty that his earthly ministry was finished, accomplished, complete. But not only does this ascension give us this confidence, beloved, Jesus in his ascending to heaven, notice how he does it. He doesn't just go up to heaven in a soul. He ascends bodily. His resurrection body, beloved, is taken into heaven. And as it is taken up into heaven, understand, Jesus is elevating us. He is elevating humans, flesh and bone, to the heavenly places. Do not forget this, beloved. Jesus ascended into heaven not merely spiritually, but also physically. A full, true human man. Fully God, fully man. Truly God, truly man. Now in the incarnation, when Jesus became the God-man, when he became fully God and fully man, that was an everlasting act. God the Son, the eternal God the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, will now forever be the God-man. And Philip Reichen said, because of the bodily ascension of Jesus Christ, the dust of the earth now sits on the throne of heaven. Because Jesus was taken into heaven in his own flesh and blood, because this is true, because Jesus sits embodied right now on his heavenly throne, it means that his ascension assures us, beloved, of our own bodily exaltation. If Jesus' bodily resurrection assures us of our own future bodily resurrection, and it does, it, the resurrection of Jesus assures us that one day when Christ returns, our own bodies will be raised from the dust, then Jesus' bodily ascension assures us of the truth that one day when our bodies are raised, we will, as glorified, embodied souls, be exalted and rule and reign with Christ. That's a promise of God's Word, that we will rule and reign with Christ. Paul says, 2 Timothy 2, that if we've died with Christ, we will also live with Christ. If we endure, we will also reign with Christ. How is it possible that you and I, those who were sinful, rebellious against God, creatures made from the dust of the earth, how is it possible that we will one day be exalted and rule and reign with Christ? Because first, Christ's earthly ministry was finished. Sin was paid for. His people atoned for. Brought back into communion and fellowship with God. It is then because Christ rose from the dead that we have the promise of our own resurrection. And now, because Christ is exalted and goes into heaven in His human flesh and bones, we know that our own exaltation will truly happen. We will rule and reign with Christ, beloved, in the new creation.
It's the second thing Christ does for us, or did for us in his ascension. He gives us certainty that our exaltation, exaltation and future reign with Christ will happen. But there's at least one other thing that Jesus did for us in his ascension. He not only gives us assurance that his earthly ministry is complete and thus our salvation guaranteed, he not only gives us assurance and certainty of our own exaltation, beloved in the ascension, Jesus also physically departs from us. Now that may seem like a strange thing to say. How could Jesus physically leaving, physically departing from us, be of a benefit to us? Wouldn't it be better if Jesus were still physically among us here on earth? And one person asked as I was studying for this sermon this week, which is better, to have Jesus beside you or the Holy Spirit inside you? According to Jesus, beloved, it is better that he would leave us. And why? Because in John 16, he says, It is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come. According to Jesus, it is better that he not be physically beside us and instead that the Holy Spirit be within us. And because he left us physically, the Helper is able to now come. The Holy Spirit descended and now indwells all of his people. Jesus says, if I go, I will send him, the Spirit, to you. Christ is the one, beloved, who sent the Holy Spirit. And that is a benefit for us. Now, I don't know how this happened. I don't know if it was like Jesus went back into heaven, he sat down on his throne, he called the Holy Spirit over to him and said, okay, it's your turn. I, I don't know how this all happened, but I know and believe because Jesus said so. That somehow, when Jesus ascended into heaven and took his seat upon his throne, he sent the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who is the Spirit of Christ in us, beloved. You see, when Jesus was physically present on earth, he was limited by his physical body. If he was with Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was not physically beside the other disciples at the foot of the mountain. If he was in Bethany, he was not in Jerusalem. But now, because of his ascension, he is physically in his heavenly throne room, and yet, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he's with you and I. He's here. Right now, through the, His Holy Spirit. He's with you day by day as you live your life in this world. Did He not promise us that He would never leave or forsake us? That He would be with us until the end of the age? How is that true if He ascended back into heaven? He's with us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is the person of God the Holy Spirit who unites us to the enthroned Jesus Christ. Because of the Spirit, 1 John 4, verse 13 says, we are in Christ, and Christ is in us, and we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given of us His Spirit. This is what Christ has done for us in His ascension, beloved. He, spent, he sent the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to dwell in us, to unite us all to Himself as He sits on His throne right now.
He has glorified and exalted His human nature, giving us the assurance that our own glorification and exaltation is now guaranteed. He has poured out His Spirit upon all of us. And again, He has given us assurance that His earthly mission, His earthly ministry is indeed accomplished and our salvation is forever achieved. This is what Jesus has done for us in His ascension. But beloved, on this note, while it is true that Jesus has indeed accomplished and completed His earthly ministry, It does not mean that his ministry among his people and among this world is indeed finished. And this leads us into the second point of our sermon today. What Jesus Christ is doing right now for us and to us because of his ascension into heaven. What Jesus is doing for us right now in his continued ministry, there's so much, really there's so much to be said, beloved. I don't think I could really cover all of it in one sermon. But there are three things that I do want to emphasize this morning about the continued work of Jesus Christ as He sits enthroned in the heavenly places. What is Jesus doing for us today? As He sits as the coronated and exalted King of Kings. Well, this is the first thing He's doing. He's serving as our King. God began to, as we heard many times throughout the Gospel of Luke, He began to inaugurate His kingdom here on earth through the earthly ministry of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the King. His kingdom is indeed a present, though not fully consummated, it is still a present reality. And we are, through faith in the Messiah, citizens of God's unshakable eternal kingdom. And because Jesus has ascended back into heaven and sat down upon His throne, understand, we now have a living and active King ruling and reigning over us from the greatest throne room in all of creation. Do you understand what a blessing that is, beloved? Do you understand even just a little bit What the benefits that God's people enjoy right now because Jesus is ruling and reigning as our King. I love how our shorter catechism says this. It says that Jesus is executing His office of King in three ways. First, He is subduing us to Himself. This is the first thing Jesus is doing right now as our King. He is subduing us to Himself. This means that Jesus through the working of the Holy Spirit, is indeed increasing His reign within our hearts. This is is one thing that we pray for every week when we say in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. Part of what that means is that we are asking for the kingdom of God to increase within our own hearts. That the kingdom of wickedness and darkness would decrease more and more within us and that our submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ would increase more and more within us. And Jesus, as our King, is answering that prayer right now as He rules in us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He is subduing our hearts to His rule and reign. It's another way of saying Jesus is our King through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is sanctifying us. Then the Shorter Catechism says Jesus is defending us. He is, as our King, protecting us, beloved. Defending His bride, the church, 
Not from suffering, not from illness, not from all these things that we think we need defended from. He is defending us, the bride, the church, from the onslaught of the enemies who seek to destroy the bride. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And why not? Because King Jesus, the sovereign God himself, is defending us. Thirdly, the catechism says that our King, Jesus, is restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. He's not only protecting us from the onslaught of our spiritual enemies, beloved, he is conquering them. Even now, as it can seem that our enemies, the enemies of Christ and His church, are running amok, as it seems so often that the powers of darkness will overcome us, Jesus the King, Jesus our King, is restraining them and indeed is conquering them. And most assuredly, beloved, because in His resurrection and exaltation, He has already accomplished it, King Jesus and we who are united to Him will indeed have the victory. We will, because of our King, be more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. This is the first thing Jesus is doing for us today because of His ascension. He is living and reigning and ruling as our King. Secondly, beloved, because of the ascension, we know that we now have a great high priest. That is, an advocate before the throne of God above. We have one in Jesus Christ who is always making intercession for us before God's throne. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What does that mean, beloved? What does Hebrews 4 mean? It means this, that Jesus is always there before the Father, saying to His Father, I have made atonement for the sins of My people. I have done for them what they could not do for themselves. And accept them, Father, because of what I have done. And it's because of this that we have found acceptance with the Father. And beloved, have utter assurance in this truth that Jesus will never stop being our advocate before before the throne of God. He will never stop interceding for us. He will never stop pleading our case before the Father. Beloved, this also means that Jesus is not only advocating for us, it means He is also interceding for us. What does this mean? It means Jesus is praying for us. As our advocate, as our great high priest, he is interceding, praying for us. Now, this is a little strange at times to think about Jesus praying for us. I think it's a little strange. What does it mean? Does it mean that when we pray and offer our prayer requests to God, that Jesus is also praying those prayer requests to the Father? That if we want a new job, Jesus is in heaven, Jesus is up in heaven saying, 
dear Father, give them this new job. It cannot mean that. Because sometimes our prayer requests are not in line with the will of God. And God the Son and God the Father do not have separate wills. There is one holy divine will. And so Jesus could never pray things to the Father which are not His will for us, His people. So what does it mean that Jesus is praying for us? Well, I think Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34, tell us what it means that Jesus is praying for us. Do you remember that passage? Luke 22, 31 through 34. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter in this passage? Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith shall not fail. This is what Jesus is doing right now in heaven as our great high priest, as our advocate, as our intercessor. He is praying for you, praying for me, that our faith shall not fail. That is a great comfort to God's people, beloved. To know the prayers of our great high, that the, that the prayers of our great high priest, our intercessor, our advocate, the prayers of the ruling and reigning Jesus Christ, they will be heard. They will be answered by the Father. And indeed, our faith, if it is true saving faith, our faith will not fail. Because of the ascension, we have an advocate an intercessor, a great high priest in heaven, Jesus Christ. And as the great Scottish Presbyterian minister, Robert Murray McShane, once said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Thirdly then, the last thing Jesus is doing for us today because of our because of his ascension is this he is serving as our minister in the heavenly places hebrews chapter 8 declares this we have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in the holy places now no doubt this is underneath his high priestly ministry for us is very much connected to the fact that he is our great high priest. But being a minister in the heavenly places, in the holy places, it has maybe a little bit of a different emphasis than Christ's work as a great high priest. Because to have a minister in the holy places means we have one in the heavenly throne room who is leading us in worship. The Greek word for minister in Hebrews 8 verse 2 it's the Greek word like turgos. That's where we get the English word liturgist from. What is a liturgist? A liturgist is one who frames and leads the order of worship. It is, to put it in modern language, a worship leader. And beloved, the reality is I, as your minister, your earthly minister, I'm frail and weak liturgist. Many times, just like you, I come into the sanctuary, sanctuary in the Lord's Day feeling very unprepared for this sacred task of worshiping the Holy God. 
I come in carrying all the same worldly distractions that you probably carry into this place. I even carry what I might call in this moment holy distractions. The spiritual burdens that my vocation as a minister uh, can sometimes consume and weigh me down with. I come, hopefully like you, desiring to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, but knowing that my best efforts are so riddled with sin and corruption. And then I stand up into this, in this pulpit and I dare to guide you all through the worship of God. You have a very weak human earthly liturgist, a very weak minister here on earth, brothers and sisters, but in heaven, in heaven we have a perfect minister, a perfect worship leader. We have the exalted Jesus Christ and it is He who takes our frail feeble worship, our worthless offerings, our sour sacrifices of praise, and He sanctifies it. He makes it holy. He purifies our sinful worship in His own blood. He cleanses it of its impurities and He presents it to the Father as a pleasing offering of praise. He presents our frail human worship to the Father as a great blessing to His holy name. And that's a pleasing aroma. I hope that encourages you, brothers and sisters. I hope that lifts up your souls. It encourages me every single week to know that I now have a perfect liturgist, a perfect worship leader, a minister in the holy places, Jesus Christ. And I know he's there doing this work because he ascended into heaven. All of this is true. All of this is possible because Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now as we close this morning, beloved, I want to leave you with one question from Luke's Gospel. The question is this, what is our response? What is our response to all of this? Well, the disciples show us our response They show us how we would respond in verse 52. They worshipped him. You know, by the way, if Luke has been hazy at all throughout his gospel, and he hasn't been, there are some liberal theologians who would say Luke doesn't really say that Jesus is God. They have a problem with verse 52. They worshipped Christ. Who would the disciples, as good, faithful Jews, worship? They would only worship Yahweh. So the fact that they worship Christ, what is that saying? The disciples believed Jesus Christ was the Lord God Almighty. They worshipped King Jesus, beloved. And then they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple doing what? Worshipping. Blessing God. And in a sense, I don't think it's a stretch to say they worshipped in private there on the Mount of Olives as they worshipped Jesus. And then when they returned to Jerusalem, they worshipped him publicly in the temple. That should be our response. Private worship. Worshipping Christ as we live our day-to-day lives. And public worship as we gather with God's people on the Lord's Day every week, neither one is optional for those who claim to truly believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Worship, private and public worship, is the way we respond to the truth that Jesus ascended into heaven.
It is interesting, by the way, that Luke began his gospel account with the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah, in the temple worshiping God. Now he ends his gospel account with the disciples in the temple worshiping God. Worship is our response, brothers and sisters. And understand this, it is not only our response to the ascension of Jesus Christ. Worship is the response to everything that we have heard about throughout the Gospel of Luke. Worship is our response to the good news of the incarnation of the Son of God. That God became man and dwelt among us. Worship is our response to Jesus Christ and the works he did in his earthly ministry. His miracles, which proved he is the Christ and showed his dominion over the physical and spiritual realms of creation. His preaching and teaching with authority in, in a way that no one had ever preached or taught before. Worship is our response to his atoning death and to the resurrection the glorification of Jesus Christ. Worship is our response to the grand truth that Jesus did indeed come to seek and save the lost, to inaugurate the kingdom of God, to make atonement for the sins of His people, to conquer sin and death and the devil. Worship is our response to the fact that Jesus has indeed accomplished all of this. Worship is the response to the truth that He is now in heaven, ruling and reigning and ministering both to us and for us. Worship is our response that, to the truth that through the Holy Spirit we are indeed united to Jesus Christ even now. Worship, beloved, is the response of God's people to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel which Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has shown to be true. A gospel about which we today may indeed have Absolute certainty.